Right, well, good afternoon, everybody. For um, those who don't know me, I'm Chris Budd. I'm the Gresham Professor of Geometry. And I'm giving a course of lectures called Maths and the Making of the Modern and the Future World. Um, my lectures are loosely based on the eight great technologies of the government. And the second of the eight great technologies is space technology. So I thought today we'd learn about maths going into space. Or to put it another way, space, the final frontier. Okay. So why is uh, space technology the second of the government's great technologies? Well, basically, it is very, very big business. Space was nothing. There was no, nothing particularly up there before 1960. It is now huge business, and it's a business which affects all of our lives all of the time. So a few statistics. Uh, it's currently about $50 billion, US dollars, um, invested in um, space technology. Uh, last year, uh, there were 85 rocket launches nearly all of which was successful, um, and there are uh, just over 4,000 satellites currently in orbit. Of course, those are the ones that we know about. There are several up there that we don't know about um, by definition, almost. Okay, so it's very, very big business, and uh, let's have a look at what's going on. So Telstar is a satellite some of you may remember, from the early 1960s, this was one of the first telecommunication satellites. And when it was launched, we could watch American TV programs. Wonderful. Okay, so um, one of the main uses of satellites is in telecommunications. Uh, so TV, we've heard about. But your mobile phone, if you want to, to ring up somebody in Australia, um, when you ring them up, then... Um, the technology for doing that requires bouncing signals around the world, and that's what the satellites do. Um, and the reason it sounds as clear as it does, I'll talk about in my next Gresham lecture in January. Another thing that satellites are used for is a thing called remote sensing. Um, so satellites going over the world look down on the world, and they can look at things like agriculture. And um, for some time, I worked on a program called the Landsat program, doing exactly that, like that, looking at land from satellites to see what agriculture was going on. Um, my current work is largely in weather forecasting, and uh, weather forecasting has been transformed out of all recognition by the fact that we have really good data coming up at us all the time from satellites to tell us um, what the weather looks like um, over the sea, for example. <coughs> um, you are very likely to be using um, um, <clears throat> GPS to find your way around, and that's all done by satellites. And I'll be telling you about GPS satellites, not in this series, but in the lecture I'm going to give in my 2018 series. Um, of course, satellites are used for spying. Um, we can also use satellites for observing space from the Earth. So the Hubble Space Telescope looks at uh, space from above the atmosphere, and we get wonderful, wonderful images of space from it, which would not have been possible if um, a satellite hadn't put it up there. 
Um, and believe it or not, something I'm also doing at the moment is counting whales. And you can count whales now. Um, satellites are so good that you can image down to about 30 centimetres or a foot, if you prefer. And with that sort of resolution, you can look at whales going around in the sea and see how many there are. Um, or if you're a farmer, they can count your sheep and see how much tax you should pay. So there we are. Satellites are hugely involved in so many bits of technology, it'd be very hard to think what to do without them. To the extent that if there was a major solar flare and the streams of particles coming from the sun was to knock out the satellites, which it would do, then our technology would stop and the government has a special committee in place to look at what that might happen if that, what they would do if that would happen. So um, I'm going to <coughs> show in this talk that the technology of space has had a profound role on human civilization right from the very, very beginnings. Right from the very, very beginnings. And necessarily, that has to involve mathematics. Um, until very recently in human civilization, it was impossible to get into space. Now we can get into the near bits of space, but we certainly can't get any further than the moon. And so anything that we want to discover about space, we have to do using mathematical tools. They're the only thing that we can use. Um, and so that's kind of what I want to tell you about. Um, and I'm going to take you on a journey, starting first of all with um, how you look at space from the Earth and the technology that's come from that. Um, secondly, we'll look at how we view Earth from space. That's the technology associated with satellites. And then we'll go a little bit further and look at how we explore the solar system. Um, then we'll go as far as we can go, um, showing how mathematics tells us a lot about deep space. And then a wonderful thing by how looking at deep space allows us to understand more about what's going on in technology back on Earth. And then we'll finish, as advertised, in that little movie going on before the talk with a little bit of origami. Okay, so that, that's the tour we're going to have. So let's start with space viewed from Earth. Um, and, of course, since the very, very earliest times that humans started thinking about the world around them, they would look up and they could see stars. Of course, in those days, they didn't have street lighting to stop them seeing the stars, like I have at home. Uh, they could look up and see a wonderful sky and were enormously affected by seeing that sky um, and assumed that that's where the gods lived. Okay. So um, here is, of course, a lovely image of the sun. And here's a quote um, from Genesis. And God said, let there be lights in the ferment of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and the years. It was recognised very early on that, that the stars and the sun and the moon did affect things on earth. The seasons seemed to be linked with where the sun was. Um, and so people looked to the skies to tell them what they were doing. Now, I'm not going to, in this talk, tell you anything about astrology or, or comment on astrology. Um, that's another story, as it were. But I will tell you about where the real science of looking at the skies, um, how that affected us, and how mathematics was important in that. 
Okay, so I would argue that the earliest piece of technology that came from space and which absolutely involved mathematics was the calendar. Okay, and here is uh, an example of a calendar, and this is a calendar from Egypt. Of course, the Egyptians conveniently carved things in stone, and so we've still got what they produced. The Babylonians put things in clay. They may well have had calendars before them, but of course we don't know. So um, we're so used to the calendar that we kind of forget how significant the technological advantage of having a calendar was. So we need an accurate calendar in order in an agrarian society to know when to plant your crops and know when to harvest them. It's absolutely vital to know what time of the year to do all that. Um, and people you know, knew from an early age that somehow um, the, the sun was involved and also that there were times of the year which were warmer and times of the year which were colder. And obviously you want to plant your crops in such a way that they're not going to be killed off by, by the, fr the frosts um, or similarly there won't be, uh, it'll be too sunny for them to, uh, to, to uh, uh, there won't be any water. So um, two things that kind of need to be known in order to get a good calendar are the times of the seasons and the length of the year. And so the first mathematical calculation that needed to be done was to find the length of the year. And this is surprisingly hard. And the reason it's surprisingly hard is that the length of the year isn't a particularly convenient um, number of days. It's 365.2422 days, and that's defining a day to be 24 hours because the actual length of the day varies slightly throughout the year by up to 15 minutes one way or the other from the mean of 24 hours. So before you can really design a calendar, you need to be able to estimate the time of the year, and the accuracy of the calendar crucially depends on this calculation, and that calculation is fundamentally a mathematical calculation. So let's look at some, how this worked. Um, so the earliest calendar, this is a cuneiform, uh, which uh, is a calendar. Uh, it's a clay tablet with uh, the, uh, a calendar marked on in, in clay imprints. Um, and it's believed that the, the earliest calendar uh, was due to the Babylonians. Um, it's possible there may have been earlier calendars elsewhere, but certainly the Babylonians had a calendar. Um, they originally thought the year had 360 days, and that was because the Babylonians counted in units of 60, and 6 times 60 seemed the right sort of length, um, and that's why there are 360 degrees in the circle, essentially one degree per day. Um, they rapidly realised that that wasn't accurate, and they, they did a more careful calculation and came up with 365 days. So that was their calendar, 365 days. And of course that's reasonable, because the year is 365 days um, uh, to the nearest integer. Um, however, that stopped working fairly quickly um, because the 0.25 um, accumulates fairly fast. Um, and the Egyptians and later the Romans um, recognised that you needed to uh, change 
the length of the year. And so they, they introduced this idea of the leap year. So you have uh, uh, one extra day every four years. Um, so the Egyptians had this, and then the Egyptian calendar was developed into the Julian calendar, which uh, was essentially the Roman calendar. And that was used to predict festivals, in particular Easter, which moved around the year quite almost at random because uh, it's to do with the moon and the sun, and the moon's orbit isn't in synchrony with the sun's at all. Um, and um, this calendar was used up until sort of the late Middle Ages when it was realised that it was going out of synchronisation. Um, and then it was changed to the Gregorian calendar, which... Um, corrected for the 0.25 to 0.2425 by a rather complicated process of uh, not counting a leap year if it falls on a hundredth uh, day, a hundredth year, but do counting a leap year if if it falls on a 400th. Um, And there was some incredible calculation as to whether the year 2000 was a leap year or not. Um, It's quite subtle. Um, But this is actually quite close to the correct value, and that's why we uh, use the Gregorian calendar now. Um, And it was introduced into the UK in 1752, uh, which led to the rather strange result that September the 2nd, 1752, which is incidentally is my wedding anniversary, well, not 1752, but the 2nd of September, um, uh, followed immediately by September the 14th. So 12 days uh, were lost in that time. So that's the Gregorian calendar, which is in use today, and which is extremely useful uh, for planting your crops and many other purposes, such as uh, um, having Gresham Lecture um, sorted out. OK, so that's, uh, that's the, uh, the calendar. So that's looking at Earth from space. Um, the calendar was also used to predict things like eclipses, So eclipses affected people's lives a lot, um, and uh, eclipses came when the sun and the moon's orbits essentially coincide in the sky. And predicting the eclipses was also important. If you got it wrong, you kind of get executed, so uh, it's fairly important to get it right. And wonderfully, uh, the prediction of the eclipses, um, which is linked with finding when numbers are in synchronisation with each other, uh, led to a whole branch of mathematics in itself that was called the mathematics of congruences um, and a thing called the Chinese remainder theorem which was able to kind of explain these congruences um, and a bit of maths which came out as looking at the, the sky um, is now used in cryptography. And this is kind of a weird thing that maths which is used for one thing then ends up being very useful for something completely different. Um, by looking at the sky you can also tell the time. Um, This is actually a favourite subject of mine, um, telling the time. I've put some quite considerable efforts into uh, designing sundials. Um, And um, by looking at how the sun goes around the sky in one day, um, you can um, divide that up into the, uh, the 24 hours, and that allows you to tell the time. Um, and until kind of the uh, clocks came along in the middle of the Middle Ages, uh, the most accurate way of telling the time was a, a sundial. And here you have what I call a traditional sundial, which uh, is a design you'll see uh, everywhere. 
uh, where you have a pointer here called a gnomon, which um, is at the angle of your latitude and points towards the pole star. Um, and then you divide the, uh, the disk around into the uh, hours of daylight, and the angles that you put these uh, follow quite a complicated mathematical formula, which had to be worked out quite carefully. So that's your traditional sundial, uh, and as I say, you can find this in um, many, many places. Um, traditional sundial doesn't quite tell the right time, and the reason for that is the, the length of the day, if we define it as the time between um, noon and noon from one day to the next, isn't exactly 24 hours. It actually changes throughout the year uh, due to the Earth's orbit moving uh, on an ellipse um, and a few other reasons. Um, and as a result, the, the sundial can be out by about as much as 15 minutes on any one particular day. Um, for reasons I've never quite understood, um, time, sundials and uh, clock time is synchronised to be exactly right on Christmas Day. Um, not, not the solstice, but actually Christmas Day. And then you get this 15-minute drift. And it's possible to correct that with a, a better designed uh, gnomon. And here is one with a, better, a shape on it called an analemma. Um, this is at the University, Simon Fraser University in Canada. And this allows you to correct for this 15 minutes. Um, and then the favorite, my favourite type of sundial, uh, which um, I've had the honour of uh, installing in a number of schools, is called an analemetic sundial, which is in the shape of an ellipse. And a child typically would stand in a particular place, uh, which depends on the date, along a line here. Um, and then the child would cast a shadow, and the shadow tells the time. And I really like this because you get the kind of human involvement with the time-telling process. And that's the analemetic sundial. And if you want to see one, there's one outside the House of Commons, um, no doubt for telling the time using politicians. OK. So um, that's how space has been important to us. Um, another area where space has been very, very important from the Earth is in navigation. I won't talk about that today. Um, but next year, I'll give a, a lecture called Maths Tells Us Where We Are, and I'll take you through the whole um, science of navigation using maths. So that's space viewed from the Earth. And that's basically all we could do up until uh, the end of the 1950s. Um, and in the 1950s, um, we finally were able to get outside um, the atmosphere and put things into space. The reason we could do that was the development of large rockets. Um, and Oberth, here in the 1930s, was one of the first people to predict that you would be able to get stuff into space if you could build a large enough rocket. Uh, the somewhat notorious Werner von Braun then put that into practice with the V2. Um, and then after the war, he went to work for America and was responsible for their rocket program. And Sergei Korolev was the sort of equivalent of Werner von Braun, and he developed the, the Russian um, rocket program. So all of these three um, essentially said, if you want to get a satellite into space, you can do it with a large enough rocket. Um, typically, use a multi-stage rocket so that you discard part of the rocket after it's burnt its fuel, and you, uh, you go down in stages until basically there's only one bit left, 
and that bit's the satellite which goes around the Earth. Um, and the first satellite that got into uh, Earth orbit it was uh, Sputnik in 1957, which the Russians put up and uh, gave a great shock to the Americans who didn't think they could do it. Um, and it was interesting. It caused two things uh, in, in the US. Um, it basically led to a, a panic which uh, ex massively accelerated the space program because the Americans didn't want the Russians to get ahead of them. Um, and in the UK, uh, they were just about to shot down, shut down Jodrell Bank for being too expensive. And then when Sputnik went into orbit, there was only one thing up on the UK that could actually track it, and that was Jodrell Bank. So they thought they'd better keep it. So it sort of saved Jodrell Bank. But it didn't. It wasn't all bad. So that, that Sputnik, it orbited the Earth going beep, beep, beep and you could listen to it if you had a radio. Um, nowadays, uh, we put satellites into orbit fairly routinely. As I said, in 2016, uh, there were just um, so, uh, something like 800 launch, 80 launches, and there are about 4,000 uh, satellites in orbit. Um, and the basic way you put a satellite into orbit, it's relatively straightforward, is you launch it vertically, um, as it comes out of the Earth's atmosphere, and then um, as the rocket gets higher, so it tilts over. Um, um, you typically want to launch it such that the Earth's orbital velocity helps. That gives you uh, a boost of 0.5 of a kilometre per second. Um, and then you put it into orbit, so it goes around the Earth uh, like that. Um, or around the sun in this case, um, if, if you want to go further. So um, this is essentially what you do. It's not very sophisticated. You just blast it up and push it along. Um, but there are problems due to the sort of speeds that you need, um, and we'll have a look at those um, in a minute. But just to talk about the history, um, we couldn't remotely consider putting satellites into orbit if it hadn't been <coughs> for the work of mathematicians through the centuries, and uh, one I particularly, or well, two I particularly want to highlight, are Galileo and Newton. So this is Galileo, who is one of my favourite uh, uh, astronomers or mathematicians. We've mentioned my wedding anniversary, the 2nd of September. I'm very pleased and proud to tell you that Galileo and I share the same birthday of the 15th of February, although, of course, in different years. Um, so I'm kind of proud of that, we, along with Shackleton, by the way, um, and the American Canadian flag. But anyway, um, Galileo uh, was the first person to really understand ballistics, to understand how things moved and the way that gravity acted on them. And here is a sketch from one of Galileo's uh, notebooks where he shows that if you, if you throw a ball, then it goes in a parabolic path as it's acted on by gravity and also moves under its own velocity. Uh, Galileo, of course, was also one of the pioneers of, of, of telescopes, which themselves have transformed uh, the way that we see um, space from the Earth. Shortly after Galileo, I think uh, the day Galileo died was the day Newton was born, or something like that, um, we get Newton, and it was Newton, above anyone, that transformed our understanding of the way things move and the way gravity acts on them. And this is a, a uh, 
uh, a sort of paragraph taken from his book, The Principia, which was published in 1690, uh, which was probably the most important uh, textbook ever published in physics. Um, and one of the uh, things he looked at was, again, looking at Galileo. Um, so he thought of shooting a cannonball from the top of a mountain. And he said, well, if you shoot it um, at a certain speed, it'll go in a parabolic path and hit at D and E. If you shoot it a bit faster, it'll go at F. If you go a bit faster, it'll go around here. But maybe if you shoot it fast enough, then it will simply fall at the same rate that the Earth is kind of bending round, and it will get back to where you started. Um, and all you need to do is shoot it fast enough so that um, its acceleration as it goes round is um, it just enough to take it around the, the uh, Earth itself. So um, Newton understood exactly what was needed in order to put a satellite into orbit. And again, that was in 1690. That's, uh, uh, you know, not far short of 300 years before it could ever been done. And this is one of the wonderful things about mathematics. You can predict things well into the future. And that's why I've called my series Maths and the Making of the Modern and the Future World. Um, so in lectures, particularly next year, I'm going to kind of peer forward into the future to see what mathematics is telling us um, technology might be like then. Okay, so that's a bit of history. Time to do a bit of maths now. Yes. Um, so let's have a look at some of the maths of this. Um, again, this was um, something which Galileo recognised. Um, I want you to imagine that we have uh, a satellite going round in a circular orbit um, with the Earth sort of here somewhere um, at a velocity v. So it's going around in this orbit, but uh, at any time it's velocity v, um, and the orbit has radius r. As it's going round in its orbit, uh, if it wasn't accelerating, it would just go off in a straight line and sort of carry on over here somewhere, um, and it needs to accelerate towards the centre of the circle in order to stay constantly on a circle. So there's this kind of slightly contradictory idea that if you're moving around the Earth um, at a constant radius, you are constantly accelerating towards the centre of the Earth. And this is called centripetal acceleration. It's the uh, acceleration towards the centre of the Earth. OK, now if I take anything, let's take a coin... Um, and I drop it, then that coin is going to accelerate also to the centre of the Earth. There we go. Uh, I'll do it once again, in case you didn't see. There we go. It drops. And of course, that's been known for some time, that if you drop things, they fall. Um, and they fall at a certain acceleration. That's the acceleration due to gravity, which is 9.8 metres per second per second, or 32 feet per second per second, if you prefer that. OK, so um, here's how you calculate what's going on if you do Newton's cannonball experiment where you want to sort of shoot a cannonball close to the surface of the Earth so it goes round in a circle. Um, the centripetal acceleration can be shown to be the velocity squared 
divided by the radius of the orbit. That's what it is. I won't go through the calculation, but it's the velocity squared divided by the radius. The, the acceleration due to gravity is this famous number, 9.8 metres per second per second. And Newton's theory of gravity says that that is equal to the thing called the gravitational constant, which is 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11, um, times the mass of the Earth, which is 5.97 times 10 to 24 kilograms, divided by the radius squared. Okay, so uh, we'll come back to that formula in a minute. Um, and in order to work out how fast the uh, cannonball has to be shot in order to get it to go around the Earth, you take this and you make it equal to this. You say V squared over R is 9.8. You plug in those things here and you find that the speed that you have to shoot your cannonball to go all the way around the Earth um, is 7.9 kilometres per second. 7.9 kilometres per second. So that's how fast um, you have to shoot a cannonball um, in order for it to go around the Earth. And of course, the reason Newton couldn't do this was at the time, um, probably that the, the, the maximum velocity you could get would be a galloping horse, or maybe a cannonball might be going a bit faster than that, but we're talking about speeds of, say, 100 metres per second or, or something like that. The, these sort of speeds were completely unattainable in Newton's time. And um, it took to the development of, of rocket technology um, before that speed could be attained. But once uh, you get to rockets, this can be done, and that's why satellites uh, could be launched. Okay. So this, this was the kind of barrier, this 7.9 kilometres per second was the barrier uh, preventing development of satellites until the 1950s. So this is Newton's idea of shooting a cannonball from uh, a, a mountain. But what actually happens in a, in a real satellite isn't that so much as uh, you shoot the, 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 the um, uh, rocket up, and at a certain height, you then, is what is called, insert it into orbit. So um, you, you put it into a, a, an orbit um, higher than just this sort of uh, near-Earth um, thing that I had there. Um, and that allows you to get um, a, a time of orbit which is different um, from... The, or, or velocity, which is different from the earlier one. So um, if you uh, have a high R, then Newton's theory of gravity, uh, combined with the centripetal acceleration, tells us that the velocity at a height R, general height, is equal to this. Um, the higher you are, uh, the, small, the lower the velocity the satellite needs to go. Um, and the time it then takes that satellite to go around the, the Earth is 2 times pi times r divided by v. Um, and it was realised by this guy, Arthur C. Clarke, who uh, was uh, a, a radio engineer, but also a very famous science fiction author, who wrote uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, amongst other things, um, in an extraordinary paper that he wrote in 1945, just after the end of the war, um, that it might be a good idea to have satellites orbiting the Earth exactly in 24 hours. Um, and the reason that that's a good idea is that if a satellite's going around the Earth 
in 24 hours, then if you look upwards, then the satellite stays in the same position. And that's extremely convenient if you want a satellite to relay telecommunications because it's always in the same place and you can bounce signals off it. Um, and he did all the calculations and he worked out that um, the satellite, in order for this to be 24 hours and for that to be true, um, would have to be at an, uh, a height of 42,200 kilometres above the centre of the Earth. And that's called a geostationary satellite. And many, many satellites are geostationary. And in honour of Arthur C. Clarke, um, such an, uh, an satellite is said to be in a Clark orbit. Again, astonishing. 1945, he did that. It took about 20 years before satellites such as Telstar were up there um, doing that um, stuff. Um, and yet he worked it all out in advance. Um, when I uh, worked in the telecommunications industry, um, I made it a point of honour to go to the library of Marconi where I worked, uh, where they had Wireless World um, back in 1945, and I actually looked at the original paper that he wrote that in. It was quite astonishing um, that he, he came up with that prediction. Uh, so, and it was all kind of done doing relatively straightforward mathematics. Um, just a, a sort of point, um, if it wasn't for geostationary orbits, we wouldn't have had the telecommunications revolution that we've, we've seen, and uh, we wouldn't have things like social media or Facebook or anything like that. So this, this little calculation has changed the world that we live in. Um, and in my next lecture, which is called Maths is Coded in Your Genes, I'm going to talk uh, quite a lot about how vast quantities of information can be transmitted reliably um, between one satellite and the Earth, and then um, also how that uses ideas related to the way genes transmit information um, uh, in, um, between, uh, well, in, bi in biology. Okay, so um, let's talk a bit more about satellites. Um, I've described their um, satellites going around the sun in circular orbits. In practice, uh, they're more likely to go around in elliptical orbits. Um, I'll talk a bit more about the ellipse in a moment. Um, and it's also very unusual for a satellite to just stay in one orbit. Um, and what's much more likely is you get something like this, uh, where um, you might launch a satellite into a, um, a near-Earth orbit, which might be um, an ellipse like this. Um, and then at what we call the apogee, the furthest point from the, from the Earth, you then do a rocket fire and then move it into an orbit which is much further away from the, the Earth, um, where you, you might then deploy the solar cells and other bits um, of, the of the satellite that need to work. Um, so with any satellite, you, you don't just launch it. You tend to launch it and then uh, burn fuel um, to move it around so that you can actually control its orbit. And this process of burning the fuel is really rather subtle. And here's the uh, kind of important, this is called the rocket equation, and I'll talk you through it, it's rather good. Um, so when you launch a satellite, uh, you track it throughout its motion, you track it using things called Kármán filters, and in the lecture I give where I say math tells you where you are, I'll tell you about Kármán filters. 
Um, you guide it um, and navigate it. So guide it means kind of pushing it and navigate it means more kind of looking long term about where it's going. Um, and you control it um, as you move. And this process of tracking, guiding, navigating and controlling satellites uh, is incredibly important to their operation and it uses an enormous amount of very, very careful mathematics um, in order to, to make it possible. Um, this thing here is called the rocket equation. Uh, what does it mean? Um, rockets carry fuel and in order to change the location of a satellite in its orbit, you burn fuel. And the fuel comes out as rocket exhaust. That gives an impulse. This is thing um, ISP is the impulse it gives you by pushing the fuel out. And that changes your velocity. And the change in the velocity is this thing called delta V. And this formula is used all the time by rocket engineers to work out how much fuel they've got um, after um, that burn um, uh, to change the velocity. And basically, the, the bigger the velocity change of the satellite, the more fuel you burn. And if you change the velocity too much, then you've got no fuel left, so you can't control it. So um, in order to uh, control satellites uh, in their orbits, organisations such as the European Space Agency um, try to control their satellites to burn as little fuel as possible um, in order to make, uh, to, to make change. Well, they, they try to do it so that they make as small changes in velocity as possible um, by burning as little fuel as possible. And this all requires very, very careful mathematical calculations using quite serious um, computers. OK, so that's putting a satellite into orbit. Um, and what I want to do now is take you beyond the Earth's orbit into the solar system to see how we move um, around in the solar system. Um, and again, studying the solar system takes us right back um, to the ancients. Um, so people originally looked at the stars and saw that there were two types of star. They're the ones that stayed where they were, the fixed stars, and other stars that were called wandering stars, and we now call planets, that moved around. And uh, various attempts were made to produce theories for what was going on. Um, and one of the earliest kind of sensible theories was due to Tol Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic theory. Um, and the Ptolemaic theory was that the Earth was at the centre of the universe, which was theologically kind of nice. Um, and everything orbited around us with the, the moon nearest um, and then Mercury, Venus, the sun um, and outwards to Saturn. Um, the um, planets orbited um, on circles, but on each circle they would go around in a little circle called um, an epicycle, um, and that was to allow planets to go forwards and backwards uh, in the sky, which was what was observed. So this was the Ptolemaic system, which was uh, very popular. It was endorsed by the church because it put the Earth at centre. It worked with common sense because the Earth wasn't moving and therefore that's how our experience and I say it was used until about 1500 and then in 1500 or so Copernicus came along and put forward a very different theory a much riskier theory from a theological point of view which put the sun at the centre 
um, the Earth uh, now orbiting the Sun, so there's a big shift in perspective, um, and everything going round on circles. In many respects, this was a much simpler theory um, than the, the Ptolemaic one, which had all these extra circles, um, uh, but it did have problems uh, with common sense in that the Earth was moving and doesn't seem to move. So these were two theories which, which coexisted. Um, neither was perfect. The Ptolemaic system, you can make it very accurate, but only making it very, very, very complex with, with epicycles on epicycles on epicycles. The Copernicum was much simpler, gave a much cleaner explanation of what was going on, but didn't seem quite right. When, when calculations were made, it didn't quite work. Um, and these, there's a lot of controversy in the Renaissance, um, the 1500s, 1600s, as to which was the correct theory. And it's vital to get that theory right in order to be able to move things around in the solar system. Um, so here are two interesting chaps. This is Tycho Brahe, who was an astronomer who collected a lot of data using some really quite accurate measuring instruments, um, pre-telescope measuring instruments. If you look at this picture of him, you can see he has a false nose. He lost his nose in a duel, um, interestingly. Um, and he had an assistant called Kepler. Um, and Kepler um, basically... Uh, uh, was given tons of data by Tycho Brahe and wanted to analyse this in order to sort of see uh, whether the Copernican theory was correct um, instead of the Ptolemaic. And as I said, the Copernican theory was nice, gave a nice simple explanation of what was going on, but it wasn't as accurate as it should be. It was sufficiently inaccurate for there to be severe doubts as to whether it was the right theory or not. So um, I'm going to go back uh, 2,000 years now to look at a, a wonderful piece of good luck that the human race had, a piece of good luck which we didn't deserve. Um, and this good luck was associated with this guy called Apollonius. Um, and Apollonius was a mathematician uh, around about well, 300 BC or so. And he was studying things called conic sections, and a conic section is the mathematical curve that you get if you take a cone and you slice it with a plane. So if you put the plane at right angles, you get a circle. If you put the plane at an angle, you get an ellipse. If you put the plane um, at exactly the right angle, parallel to this line, you get a thing called a parabola. And if you put it at any other angle, you get a hyperbola. And you can see a hyperbola if you switch on your bedroom light, it's the... Uh, light cast by your bedroom. Apollonius studied these curves. Um, mathematicians later on worked out the formula for them. Um, in X and Y Cartesian coordinates, this is the formula for an ellipse. That's the formula for a hyperbola. Or in polar coordinates, where you look at uh, angles and um, radius, that's the formula for both of them, with this number uh, changing if you're an ellipse or a hyperbola. OK, why is this a fluke and why are we lucky? Um, Apollonius studied these as a bit of pure mathematics. He had no thought whatsoever about, about applications. Kepler was trying to work out what needed to be done to fix Copernican theory so that it would fit with the data. And he came up with the idea 
that these circles look pretty good, but maybe let's try the ellipse. It's a conic section. We know something about these. So he tried putting his planets on an elliptical orbit, and it worked perfectly. Why is it a lucky fluke? We, had, we just didn't have... Uh, the, the human race didn't deserve to have the planets going round in orbits which had been discovered by a mathematician 1,500 years before they were needed. Okay. If they'd gone round in any other shape, we wouldn't have known what they were. But they went round in ellipses. And Kepler spotted that they went round in ellipses. Um, his theory and the observations agreed perfectly, and therefore we understood how planets go around the sun. And that changed us from the Earth-centred view of the universe to a sun-centred view, and it was a, a lucky fluke. That's our first lucky fluke. We've got another one coming up. Um, Kepler had two other laws. One was that the um, equal areas are, e are swept out in equal time. Uh, this is called conservation of angular momentum. And the th a third was that the, the square of the orbital period of uh, some sort of the Earth, it's a year, was proportional to the cube of the distance. So Kepler had these three laws, and those three laws together described what was going on. But they're what we call empirical laws. And they're empirical because he looked at the observations and found a mathematical model which fitted them. Okay? It's not an explanation of what's going on. It was a mathematical formulation of what was going on. But what it showed was that there was a huge mathematical order to the universe. The universe seemed to obey mathematical rules. Again, that's crazy. Mathematics is a, something that comes out of the human mind. Um, in the case of conic sections, it was come, come from looking at cones and stuff. How on earth could that have anything to do with the motion of the universe? Unbelievable. Well, the person that worked out why was, of course, Newton, who in 1690 formulated his law of gravity, which was that two bodies attract each other with a force which is inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them, but proportional to the product of their two masses. And that's Newton's law of gravity, which was published again in his Principia in 1690. And he wrote down this law, and he wrote down um, his other laws of motion. And here's the second big fluke. The second lucky fluke is, in my experience, if you write down most anything to do with the real world, it's far too complicated and you cannot solve it. You need a computer. Newton was incredibly lucky, if that's the right word, that he could exactly solve his equations and the exact solution turned out to be an ellipse. And he was able to um, predict all of Kepler's th three laws from his law of gravity. Unbelievable. Um, of course, Newton was a genius, but even he was lucky, I reckon. Um, nice little story uh, leading on from this. Um, on the 13th of March, 1781, by the way, the 13th of March is my wife's birthday. <laughs> Again, not 1781, um, much more recently. Um, in, in my city of Bath, uh, William Herschel uh, pointed his telescopes to the skies and discovered the planet, planet Uranus. And they, uh, they looked at the orbit of Uranus, and they found it didn't quite fit Newton's laws. Um, so they had two alternatives. They could abandon Newton's laws, 
or they could think, well, why doesn't it fit? And the astronomers at the time uh, thought, well, we believe Newton's laws, and maybe it doesn't fit because there's another planet out there which is disturbing its orbit. And uh, two mathematicians, John Couch Adams and Urbain Le Verrier, French and English, um, went off and calculated where the planet should be. Uh, the German astronomer Gala uh, looked at their predictions, pointed his telescope, and there was the planet, and we call that planet Neptune. Um, one thing that's often said about mathematical models is why do you bother? Um, all you're doing is putting, you know, in different formats something we know already. Yet here what we see is a prediction that was made using mathematics which wasn't there originally and led to the discovery of something completely new, which was Neptune. And that was just amazing. Predict something which wasn't there before, and there it is. So, Newton's laws, essentially fantastic. Um, just to show you that there's not quite as easy as you thought, um, if you take three bodies, um, two bodies, exact solution ellipse, three bodies, there are the equations for three bodies, um, this is something I look at. There's no simple solution. If you have three bodies of equal masses moving around each other, instead of an ellipse, you get something like that. Okay. That's called a chaotic orbit. They're quite hard to compute. I spend my life trying to worry about them. Um, and uh, Poincaré, the French mathematician, um, sort of looked at these things and came up with the theory of chaos uh, as a way of kind of trying to understand these. Um, and actually, it's, the reason we try and worry about these things is that asteroids can go around in these sort of orbits, and we have to worry about whether they're going to hit us or not, and that's kind of important for the human race. But anyway, that's another story. Okay, back to satellites. So um, the three-body problem can't be solved, but if you take the two-body problem, that's the Sun and the Earth, and a satellite, um, and add a satellite to it, the satellite is so small, it doesn't affect the Sun and the Earth, it, but it is affected by those two. Um, and Lambert, who was a Swiss mathematician in the uh, mid-1700s, looked at the problem of how do um, things like small bodies, he didn't call them satellites, just called them small bodies, move in the presence of um, bodies like the Sun and the Earth. Um, and he worked it all out. In the mid-1700s, this guy Lambert solved the problem of how satellites move around um, in the solar system. This is called Lambert's problem, and it was completely solved. Um, again, that's the mid-1700s. Um, 200 years, 250 years later, um, people were solving Lambert's problem for a rather more immediate thing, which was putting people on the moon. So here is the, the sort of orbits that were uh, solved uh, by solving the uh, reduced three-body problem, which Lambert solved, and that put uh, Apollo 11 on the moon, and also got Apollo 13 back from the moon when it blew up on the way. Um, and what's wonderful is that uh, these calculations, which were mostly done at NASA, were uh, largely done before big computers came along. They were done on blackboards. Um, and here, if you've seen it, is the film Hidden Figures. Um, and here's a blackboard that was used to do these calculations. Um, and if you haven't seen it, go and see the film where you see three of the uh, 
people that did the calculations were actually African-American women um, who were called computers. Um, and they uh, used, uh, you know, uh, chalk and uh, thinking to solve the sort of problems that um, were needed to solve the Apollo orbits. Um, and uh, uh, their achievements weren't really recognised until some time later. So do go and see the film Hidden Figures if you haven't already done so. Um, as I said, one of the features of moving a satellite around is that you don't want to burn fuel if you can avoid it. Um, satellites go around the Earth in elliptical orbits, but if you shoot one um, into space and it comes uh, across uh, another object, like the Sun or Jupiter or something like that, um, and it's going fast enough, so if it comes like here, it'll actually swing around uh, the, the body and carry on uh, uh, having swum round in a, another direction um, um, in hyperbolic orbit. We talked about these uh, elliptical orbits as conic sections. The hyperbolic orbit is another one. Um, so providing it's going fast enough, it'll swing round. Um, and this is uh, used in a thing called the swing shot effect. So if you want to shoot, take a satellite and send it, say, to Neptune, what you can do is aim it for Jupiter. Uh, it, it approaches Jupiter like this. It, it whizzes past. Jupiter pulls it with its gravity, accelerates it, and fires it out. Um, and that way you can kind of change the direction. And also it picks up velocity due to the velocity of Jupiter without um, any burning of fuel. Um, and this slingshot effect is used very, very greatly in putting satellites into orbit. Uh, again, there's a lot of maths that's used here. Here are two probes that were launched in the 1970s. That's Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which were launched from space. Um, they were swung around Jupiter and managed to get all the way out to Neptune, and they're still going strong. Um, in fact, if you watch Star Trek The Motion Picture, you'll see that they got all the way into deep space and then were sent back again by aliens. Anyway, um, I'm going to show you a film next, which is a film which shows the orbit of what's called the JUICE probe, which is um, a satellite that's being sent from the Earth to Jupiter by the European Space Agency. This is a film by the European Space Agency. And you can see in this film the, the way it's launched and it's... it's um, it goes on slingshots past Jupiter, uh, past Venus, the Earth, and Mars before getting to Jupiter. So here we have uh, Jupiter's over here somewhere, hasn't even arrived yet. There's the Earth, Jupiter, uh, Venus, Mercury, and Mars, the Sun. We're going to launch a satellite from here, and you'll see what happens. There it is in white. It swings past the Earth here. Uh, now goes swings past Jupiter, uh, Venus, I mean. Uh, it's back to the Earth, swings around the Earth again, comes up to Mars, swings around Mars. It's still carrying on. Um, Jupiter's going to appear over here somewhere. Hasn't quite got to Jupiter yet. Uh, it's going back around Venus and back around the Earth, back around Mars, and eventually... It's going to catch up with Jupiter, which will appear over here somewhere. There it is. Um, 
uh, meets Jupiter. All, imagine all the maths that's gone into doing that. It just makes me feel very happy. Um, and it's burnt almost no fuel in doing that. It, it's catched a lift off all those other planets. And if anyone's interested, I put a link in my transcript to this. So that's the solar system. I very briefly want to talk about deep space now. Um, so this is Einstein, who in 1915 published the general theory of relativity, um, where he said that Newton's theory of gravity wasn't really right, that what gravity was all about was the distortion of space-time, or the geometry of space-time. I put that word in because I'm the professor of geometry uh, by a massive body. Um, and Einstein wrote down this equation, which is called the Einstein field equation, or otherwise known as the equation of the entire universe, um, to say how the um, geometry G, A, B, that's, that's the curvature of space-time, was affected by the mass of a body, T, A, B. So this is the curvature of space-time uh, affected by a, uh, the Earth. Um, this, this theory was published as a kind of extension of Newton's theory, and it made various predictions. One prediction was that the elliptical orbits that Kepler uh, observed were not quite right, that actually um, planets go around in ellipses which precess. Um, it predicted that you got black holes, which were bodies where this orbital velocity and the escape velocity, so the escape velocity that you'd need to send a satellite out from becomes greater than the speed of light, so that they're just sort of black chasms in which space gets sucked. Um, that was predicted by his theory. And a final prediction, which has only just been verified uh, just a couple of years ago, that if you have space, um, big events in space like black holes colliding, they can send ripples in space-time, which are very small, but you can detect them. And in 2015, the LIGO detector in America detected these ripples for the first time. And now we can look deep into space by looking at um, prediction, uh, but ray, gravitational waves caused by big bodies. And this is another example of a prediction that was made mathematically, which uh, uh, eventually was shown to be exactly right. I will, um, yeah, just to say, uh, Einstein's predictions are also very important in modern GPS satellites in order to correct the clocks for these. And I will talk more about this when I give my lecture on Math Tells You Where You Are um, next year. Just to finish, um, I advertised origami. Uh, one of my favourite mathematicians in the world is a guy called Robert Lang, who combines three things in one career. He is a mathematician, he is a rocket scientist, and he is an origami expert. And all three are put together in the design of satellites where you fold up um, all the solar cells and launch them into space. And here is them unfolding. And with mathematics, you can actually now get these solar cells to fit into really, really small space. And so you can launch them on much smaller rockets and therefore burn less fuel and get into much higher orbits as a result. So the business of unfolding um, solar panels using origami is a lovely modern example of the way maths is used in space travel. So just to conclude, I said at the beginning that space is big business. Space is out of sight. Most of it we can't experience directly. And so it's only mathematics which allows us to see so far and to exploit all these technologies I've told you about. Thank you very much.